ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord God, we are grateful for your word. Day after day and week after week, your church has sought it, and I would like to know how your son, his apostles, his prophets have expressed themselves to guide us. We'd ask that we would be guided this morning. In your son's name, amen. Um, last night, there was a large contingent of stop by the big house crowd, a variety of souls, from everything from uh, who was there. Patchens were there, Hills were there, Peter Escalante was there, then old friends from years ago, lived here in Moscow, Ed Lang, remember Ed Lang? Uh, he stopped by with the Lamaros and just strange, strange, uh, probably 20 people on the front porch. At one point, Andrew, nobly trying to draw the conversation into some sensibility and not just gossip, asked me what had caused the sermon last Sunday. I then asked him what was the sermon last Sunday. He reminded me, which was good. Um, and before we could get to what had caused the sermon last Sunday, uh, the conversation off into something else, I forget what. Um, but the, as I thought about the sermon last Sunday after having heard that question, the question of what prompted the sermon last Sunday prompted the sermon this Sunday. That sums it up. In that last Sunday, I'd been looking at, it was Thessalonians 4, and, and uh, because I was having talked to my father about uh, getting the saints to the place they need to be in the most basic of terms, the most basic expectations, the definitions of the life in Christ, and Thessalonians 4 is good for that in a broad sort of way. And so thinking about that question this morning as I was looking at the scriptures with my Pop-Tart, um, I uh, had just opened it to Proverbs 15, and I hadn't been, it being the Bible, um, hadn't been in Proverbs 15 in almost 10 years, and um, and the Proverbs are a difficult thing to go through in any kind of sermonish sort of way. Sometimes you get a thread of things that kind of are on the same subject, then Solomon will shove something about saving money, you know, or something like that, in between everything. But Proverbs 15, as you're looking at it here, 10 through 24, largely moved in the same way as, as 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, that these are things that I think Christians need to know that the definition of what the life in Christ is is not up to them. You don't get to have your own kind of Christianity. You have the Lord's kind of Christianity. And knowing what the definitions are, what the expectations are, uh, where you ought to be going so that when you sit there alone at night grumbling about the state of things or wondering about how you're you know what's wrong with your life you know you you have some place to go your mind will go to certain things about this this morning the, the words that, that I started by looking at verse 13 a glad heart 
makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is broken. A glad heart. And this passage has a lot to do, a number of the Proverbs have to do with gladness, happiness, joy, cheerfulness. But first you have to decide, and the reason I started back at verse 10, is you've got to decide as a believer, when you sit in front of the Word of God, what are you going to do with it? You've heard us say here before, what does it say? Do you believe what it says? Are you going to do what it says? Are you going to hold your life up and not say, well, but, but it's me, and I get, my, uh, I get a certain pleasure from feeling this way? A perverse pleasure, no doubt, that, that uh, Jesus wouldn't allow, but nonetheless, I enjoy it, and I don't want to feel the way the Lord tells me to feel. So the first thing you have to realize are where your commitments are. Where are your, uh, what do you claim, who do you claim to have be your Lord? You know that passage in the Gospels where he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? Verse 10, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof <coughs> will die. Sheol, which is Hebrew Hades, and Abaddon, or Abaddon, don't lie open before the Lord. That's Hades and the destroyer. That's what Abaddon is. Lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. A scarver does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. So just as a, a few verses before this suggestion about attitude, the rest of this passage this morning is largely on our attitudes. It tells you that there are certain kinds of people who hate reproof and they will be severely disciplined. And that God knows everything about you, the hearts of men. And, but there's a certain kind of person, the scoffer, who does not want to get counsel. So at some point you can... If you say, this is too close to Council 11, and shut down. <clears throat> One of the uh, benefits of this church is the lack of structure, uh, government, programs, um, anything. And, um, and there's no membership. You can't, you can't join the church. And for the person who really doesn't want to be bothered by the church, we're perfect. We won't bother you. Lord, we hope, will bother you. And it will be evident, not being bothered by the social phenomena called the church, trying to live up to everybody else's standards, that you will stand before the word of God and feel that you have to live up to it. That <coughs> your failure to uh, grow in grace will be yours and yours alone, not something that we failed to do. Our, our lives are evident. What you do with this passage, whether you struggle against, and I don't know, because I, I, I've found recently, I've mentioned this to a few of you over the last few years, that I've been in too many debates with Christians about um, joy. I was for it. And I was arguing with Christians who were against it. Now, what? 
I, I can't even comprehend um, how that can be shaped up. But there are people who, <clears throat> in a perverse way, enjoy not being happy. You have to decide first if you like the reproof of the Word of God. When it tells you that a glad heart, in the next verse, <coughs> makes a cheerful countenance. I don't know if you knew that, but it's called a smile. For me, it's just smug smirking, but uh, for some of you who have got nice teeth and you know, a beautiful smile, uh, the Hagans always had great smiles. Uh, who else has a great smile? Do the twins? So you guys are currently all with uh, purple things in your. Um, who else had? Uh, Taylor has a great smile. You know the people that just you know grill work. There's a great story by P.G. Woodhouse called "The Smile That Wins," and his doc. He had he had uh, acid indigestion. His doctor told him to smile because the attitude of the face would work its way down to his stomach and he would, but he had a hideous, God-destroying smile. But every time his stomach bothered him, he smiled a smile and everybody around him would flinch and, and confess their sins because they, it looked like he knew something. So he went into the private detective business. Good story, pick it up sometime. A glad heart makes a cheerful countenance. You know that. Somebody says something funny. You know, the, we, we, when Anders laughs in church because he hears you laugh, it's not because he understood the joke. Because he wants to participate in the, in the humor. It's, it's obviously a good time. But the, as we grow up, we begin to realize, I understood the humor, and I laughed uncontrollably. I laughed, or a smile crossed my face when I was looking at somebody's baby. Other uh, babies, not so much. We know that a glad heart makes a cheerful countenance. But he pulls that up, that automaticness. <coughs> but by sorrow of heart, he doesn't say, you will frown. The spirit is broken. The effect, the natural effect of being glad will show up on your face. You will look happy. You can't stop it. And sorrow of heart breaks your spirit. You can't stop it. Now, he starts to recommend a number, number of passages a little bit later on here in the chapter 15. The kind of gladness, the kind of joy, the kind of cheer that, he, that, that someone who is wise participates in. He says to be glad, or recommends gladness. He doesn't want you broken by sorrow. Verse 14, the mind of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Now in all of this, you know from, from reading Ecclesiastes and other times, with much knowledge, much vexation. You're being asked to step into something where knowing is kind of a crisis. Um, 
if you ever start looking at politics too closely or economics of the country too closely or the state of the church or the history of the church, uh, pretty soon you're, you're, you decide you're going to become a, a monastic and, and leave town because it's awful. It's, the world has this, this glowing cover of order and benefit and there's stop signs and polite policemen and hair dye when you need it uh, at, at Walgreens because, my gosh, what a wonderful country. First world. But then you begin to talk to people or look at things and you realize you can't even imagine how the traffic keeps running correctly because sin is so big. Seeking understanding, him who has understanding seeks more. So somewhere along the line, the glad heart isn't being killed by this, having understanding and seeking knowledge. But oddly enough in the world, what The, what the world has, what the world offers of awareness is you are either James Dean, for those of you who are young and don't know who James Dean was, uh, rebel without a cause, just very, 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 very ridiculously good looking, um, cool individual. And the basic cool thing, and you know what's cool, cool is the perception that you know. When people, in whatever set you are in, if you run into a bunch of Lord of the Rings fans, nobody else thinks they're cool. But inside that group, the person who knows the most about the Cimmerillion, they're cool. Whatever the base of knowledge is for your society, when it's perceived that you know, you're perceived as cool. But what is the, you might say, the facial expression of the cool? Jaded, you know, lids half shut, cigarette, Forgotten, half smoked. That's cool. But for the believer, it's telling us, you know, a glad heart, you might want to have one of those and get a whole bunch of knowledge. If you have any knowledge, you're going to get some more knowledge. But the mouths of fools feed on folly. There's some kind of There's some kind of, um, oh, what's, what's the word or phrase? It's counterintuitive what we're dealing with here. We know, even God tells you, that the knowledge has much vexation. You see Christ coming over the Mount of Olives, looking upon the city of Jerusalem, and he knew. The city that was called by his name, that for millennia he had washed over. And he was there knowing they were going to kill him in a few weeks. And he wept over the city. Knowledge is pretty dark. But there's a folly having information isn't knowledge. Knowledge has to be true. Not saying that the fallacious knowledge or the foolish knowledge um, isn't dark as well, but sometimes people think, well, if it's dark and, and, and uh, information, it must be true. 
people believe conspiracy theories very easily because it tells them something unthinkable and that somebody is up to something and that's just automatic. I mean, I could tell you two things. Sears is trying to take over the world by worshiping Satan or Sears is a boring store almost out of business. And one of those is an attractive idea. And it ain't the boring one. We have ways of dealing with information that come into us as Christians. The older you get, parents sometimes get this way. They start, there's that youthful, you know, go through college, meet the girl of their dreams, marry, produce a few, you know, reasonably attractive children. And then the weight of earning the living, the weight of raising those awful pieces of sin called your children. Um, the more you know, the more depressed. I mean, depression is running through the Christian world, no different than it's running through the non-Christian world. And it doesn't seem to be one of our options this morning. Because the cool, they deal with it by saying, okay, I'm just jaded. I'm jaded by the information. I'm not glad. I'm not cheerful. I'm not happy. I'm not joyful. The chicks dig me. But that's about all I've got. There are other kinds of people, too. And this was, came on about, oh, somebody could tell me better, but probably 10 years ago, maybe 15. Have you heard of the word Broken. The church got big into brokenness because you looked at the world and it was hell. And what else are you going to do with it? I'm broken. Well, quit it. The Lord is here to save. The joy of the Lord is something you are offered in Christ, not brokenness and a kind of detente with brokenness. Cool is one way of, of making an agreement with the darkness that is the state of the world, and affliction is another. Look at the verse 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. It seems to hold being afflicted the sour, not the cool, the sour. The people who look at situations and go, oh, this is just awful. And they, they're parlayed it. You know out there in the world, they're parlaying being afflicted, whether it's victim culture or... And, and people fight over... Um, we're Scots, so we've always won. So I understood... I, I can't always identify with, with afflicted peoples. Um, but after World War II, you've possibly heard of um, the Holocaust. Okay. Believe me... Our, our Hebrew friends protect that. The Armenians have got a claim to genocide. My sister's married to an Armenian in LA. They can't talk about anything else. It's been a long time since the genocide. But it's hard to get room in the affliction class because one group is protecting the afflicted people group category very strongly. Because affliction 
as soon as people can victimize their circumstance, as soon as the person, not the class, but just the individual who's been beat up by life circumstances, and they look at it, and they know it for truth, <coughs> it just produces calamity. That's what the word evil is. It's not saying sin, it's calamity. All the days of the afflicted are calamitous. But the cheerful heart is, has a continual feast. And it doesn't say that you can't be happy in the Lord unless people are inviting you to parties all the time. It's the viewpoint of the character. The cheerful heart versus the afflicted heart. You remember the story if you read your Bibles. Philippi, Paul and Silas, in jail, in chains, singing hymns. Christians today, if they were arrested, especially for being Christians, first we'd call the Alliance Defending Freedom, and then there would be lawsuits pressed, and then there would be maybe hunger strikes. <laughs> we should be singing hymns. doesn't matter what happens to you. Stuff happens to everybody, and then it kills you. Okay? Remember, that you're in this life losing the battle. Our bodies are dead because of sin. We are facing death. You're just, just at some point it's going to happen. It'd be kind of, I don't know if it'd be fun. Would it be fun if I had a stroke or up here? You know, I'm 62. It's got to happen someplace. And I might as well die in front of the church. You say, every sermon of yours dies in front of the church, Evan. <clears throat> that wasn't funny. Yes, it was. After church, Anders. Um, we have a task of saying, why am I not rejoicing? And you have to decide whether or not the words you give are the words of a fool, either saying, well, because I know too much about the state of the world. God said, well, so... Or bad things happen to me. Yeah, might be partly because you think of yourself as afflicted. I am the victim of this world. I'm not the cheerful heart in this world. The cheerful heart gets up in the morning and sees the feast in front of them. Now, you have to ask, um, a lot of people have this relativist, postmodern view that everybody gets to be what everybody wants to be. You do, because the wise man is wise for himself, and the fool, he alone, will bear it. So it's, yeah, you do get to decide, but you don't get to be equally right, or equally good, or equally wise in those positions. A lot of people want to say that whatever I chose to be in terms of my joy, in terms of how I measured the world around me, how I stood, with what kind of heart I had in me, is okay because, well, you know, one man, one vote. The rights of man, whatever it is, you know, that somehow you think you, your decision about this made, made it valuable. And you ask me after church, well, does this make me a bad person? Why, yes, it does. 
make you a bad person. Less human. I'm sorry. That's not how God designed people to be. He wanted us away from sin, rejoicing in him. And if you've designed some sort of afflicted, woe is me situation, or the uber cool individual who who can't be bothered with rejoicing, it makes you a bad person. You made choices that are going to be recognized by others as bad. Yes, you're horrid. I don't know if you ever had one of those moments with the mirror um, where you, you look at yourself and say, yeah, the, uh, the vicar was right. I'm not actually a vicar, but you know, I like calling myself that. The vicar was right. I'm not who I should be. Am I one of those people who don't like to be reproved? Not go to the wise who forsake the way, who hate reproof. That I think I wasn't known by God being this way. Now why did I say it does make you a bad person? Yes, you're not as good as other people. Yeah, you know that, that anybody who's talked to me at any point realizes that I have um, drunk heavily from C.S. Lewis and, and his views of the hierarchies and equality. Equality is a fiction. You are not equal. Okay? Just because just John Locke said you were doesn't mean you are. Who are you before God? What are you supposed to be? Better. People don't even like that word. Not only have I been in arguments with Christians about rejoicing, but when I've used the word better, I've had Christians reprimand me, friendly, friendly in a friendly way. Not, don't use that word. People, people won't like it when they hear that word. Why won't they like it when they hear that word? Because they believe in the lie they were told that they're all equal. And they don't want to consider for a moment maybe just in a certain area, um, Tom Brady might be a better athlete than you. Okay, just, just get to that. And you can accept that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can accept that. Very narrow category. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is and a fatted ox and hatred with it. Be in a world where there's better and worse. Better and worse circumstances, better and worse people. Because it's talking about the people here, it's not saying the circumstance, because actually the circumstance is counter. Just eating salads, it's, I, this is one of my life verses, because it, it suggests that salad is the worst thing that can happen to you. <laughs> a dinner of herbs. Well, nothing died from my meal. Well, something should have died, right? Well, you don't get that. A fatted ox, you'd think that would make you happy. But it doesn't. Because hatred with it, trouble with it, who you are, 
fear of the Lord, where love is, those change the, the nature of, of the circumstance. And you have to ask yourself, which would I rather have? We got into that discussion at one point late last night. I went to bed at 10.30. There were all those people on my porch. I said, I give up? I'm gone. Uh, because comparisons were being made. People were saying, which is better? This kind of woman or that kind of woman? There were wives present. And one of them took umbrage at what husband said. It wasn't my wife. So I, I bailed at that point. But you're supposed to think about these things. What's better, what's worse? It'd be better for me. And how many of you, I think the, the, the question was, well, I won't go into that. How many of you think that, well, I could, if I had the great treasure, I, I could, or the fatted ox, I, I, wouldn't it be best just to be rich and loving God and fearing the Lord? That's not really the option here. We'd like to always have the thing you really want to have make you good, make you happy there. You don't want to find out if you would be a happy believer with only salads or little. Because do you know how much better fear of the Lord and love will make a home? You can't buy, there's not enough money to buy a vantage point that's correct. You can't become smart with a lot of money. And having a feast every night can't save you. The hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. It starts to talk here in verse 18 and following <clears throat> about what gladness, cheerfulness, happiness, being able to realize that where I am in my view of the world and what it is, knowing a lot and having the way of measuring it, and you, you can have to answer in your own time how I could know a lot about this world and not have a Pollyanna view of it that makes it, you know, America's great, it's the first country in the world, America, and shoot off some fireworks on Tuesday and and, uh, and, uh, and the church is so God, we're growing so much in Jesus. You've got to pronounce Jesus in two syllables. Sometimes three. We know we can lie to ourselves, and you've probably, as you've grown up in church or wherever else, if you had any of that cool thing going on in your life and you were talking to Christians in your church, you're going, are they out of their minds? Not because they were in, in this state of rejoicing that was artificial, but because what they were believing about the world. But you want to meet Christians who believe everything correctly about the world. Look at it in the eye and go, yeah, the crowd is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He has won. doesn't matter what happens in the world. They could start doing transgender surgeries at Pullman Regional Hospital, and guess what? Jesus Christ would still be Lord. And Christ has won in history. And in the resurrection and in the judgment, everybody will get what they deserve. Don't you worry. You don't have to take vengeance on them. You don't have to pick at the hospital. You just have to live like a Christian. See it correctly. See it correctly. 
see the fear of the Lord, see where love is, and realize that who you're being made by the Holy Spirit of God is a better place to be. It's a cheerful place to be. And it starts to have effect on others. It starts to have effect outside of you. Um, it describes what not only does gladness or happiness show on your face, it begins to be lived out. The hot-tempered man stirs up strife. The guy who has control of himself, like one of the fruit of the Spirit, read this morning by, uh, by Phil, is self-control, slow to anger, quiets contention. The way of a sluggard is overgrown with thorns. One of the basic things I hear about depressed people is they end up spending countless hours horizontal in bed. Can't even get out of bed. What's the point? I guess is the... It's part of the calamity that comes with the afflicted. Viewing it as afflicted. But the path of the upright... And why, you say, why did he make upright red? Because it didn't come that way from Solomon. Solomon had it all black and white. But I made it bold and red for a reason. Is a level highway. Remember, you get it wrong, the world stands up, even if you're viewing the world reasonably accurately, but have this dark view of it, if, if, it, if it push comes to shove, the world's going to beat the heck out of you. Reality will work you over. Because you have no strong place to stand. You don't have fear of the Lord, because obviously you're not. You said, I'm going to sulk here in bed. The Lord said, uh, 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 no, don't do that. Rejoice. Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. And every morning you wake up, it is either written in heaven and you believe it, or you do not. Because if you are in bed, depressed, you believe something else than that. The upright gets a level highway. The sluggard is overgrown with thorns. The upright, talking to Glenn during a break, I have strange theories, don't ask me about them. But one of them involves how do I say this simply? The primary nature of reality. Okay? I was saying, doing free time. Primary nature of reality is will. Not, this is stuff. This is material. The secular humanist thinks that material is everything. It's a deter materialistic determinism. It's what the force of stuff is doing in the cosmos. I think God made the world that he gave us stuff, gave us wills, gave us autonomy by which we stood in the pressures of whatever the natural things of this world drawing us to the center of the earth, the center of the solar system, the center of the galaxy, the center of all, and then, you know, the God particle that out of which everything came. Might have something to do with gravity, I don't know. But we stand, we are the image of the upright you probably get it even in, in, in secular textbooks. You, you look at the monkey getting more and more what? Upright. 
And like, like as we have this emotional sense, well, that's an achievement. There's no reason to think upright was better than looping along on four. Horses do it great. But we are so big on standing upright and little kids when they start staggering around upright. One of the first lessons they have is you and the moms, the guys are pretty crass or cruel about this. But we like to see them fall. Our oldest, who has now survived to his 35th year, would fall like a telephone pole. It wasn't like break at the knees and go down or fall on his butt. Just boom. It was hilarious. But it's amazing how quickly an uneducated, barely, barely English-speaking savage will learn 32 feet per second squared in such a way that their body will adjust to those pressures. The task of standing this material that is mine upright. Have you learned what it is to stand upright? Because it's not just your ability to measure and balance yourself with these appendages like a squirrel and a tail. You know what 32 feet per second squared is, but, and you function with it, but the rest of the world has those laws as well, drawing you toward nothing. And your will, how you've studied these things, defines your success. And your success in the broader world, the, 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 the effect of the sluggard, the effect of the upright, the hot-tempered man, the wise son, verse 20, makes a glad father. <coughs> Something about the prophecy of uh, John the Baptist, he'll turn a fa- the child's hearts to his fathers and the father's hearts to the sons. Nothing like those of us who are fathers, I have four kids, being pleased. There's nothing quite like knowing you pleased your father. I get to get my dad up every couple times a week. And uh, it's nice to know that he appreciates that or appreciates some aspect of you or that you make him glad in the morning when you're getting him dressed. He's 89, so. Foolish son despises his mother. Do you recognize that the calamity of life, having the wrong notions, having something that is, back to the first verses, forsaking, or who hates, who does not like, will not go. I don't think I have to be happy all the time. Says who? Well, because you're going to wreck your life. You're going to wreck everything for you, not for me. I'm happy. The upright will walk through it, looking at life as a continual feast. You've seen rich people that can't process that into joy, and poor people that can't process it into joy. It has nothing to do with being poor or rich. Folly is a joy to him who has no sense. Oh, this is an interesting thing. Because, to some degree, there is a... 
the truth of happiness, the phenomena of it, and you've probably met non-believers, oh, I don't know about them, are they going to go to heaven? They seem so nice, so happy. The fools, for someone who doesn't know how to measure the world, they'll get no, when you have no sense, folly makes you happy because it rewards, you might say, basic animal pleasure. It doesn't arrange your life in a wise fashion. No sense and folly are the disorder of thought, disorder of, of, of uh, the fear of the Lord, not doing things as you ought. And so you will then pursue not an ordered life, but a pleasure-oriented life. There will be satisfaction. You've heard the phrase, not my circus, not my monkeys. For most people, it is their circus. And it are their, those are their monkeys. And they kind of like the monkey show. They kind of like it when the monkeys go nuts and, and start throwing poo around. Because that's exciting and, and it's a party. We're not asked to replace the cheerful, glad, joyful heart that sees the world as it is. Somehow, you've got to take the world as it is that you knew about and you studied more about, pass it through the fear of the Lord and the love of God, and find yourself rejoicing regardless of your circumstances. That's the joy you're supposed to have. Because what is that? There's some words here in the last section, like success without counsel, plans go wrong, but with many advisors, they succeed. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. You can say, I can understand success, you know, getting, putting my money and efforts into a business and building it, and, and at 45, being able to retire early and call it success. Yeah, well, we all know that. That'd be successful. That'd be nice. But there's all the way down to the individual sweet moment when you said just the right thing. Just the right thing. The apt answer is a joy to a man, a word in season. How good it is. He is more poetically intense about this, the well-placed remark than he is about the success. He likes the success, too. You can have plans that succeed. An apt answer. Now, those are for some, a man of understanding walks What's it? Walks aright in verse 21. So walking aright, succeeding, rejoicing in the guide that knowing God and knowing the world pass through the fear of the Lord will produce for you. Because then that no matter what circumstance you are thrown into, you don't have to worry about whether or not the provision for your family is... is uh, like the prison other people have. Enough vacations, enough Disneyland trips. How good it is, is when your knowledge... Um, I, someone was asked me years ago about uh, my daughter, who she should marry, or what I'd want to see in a guy. I said, well, you know, after the Christian stuff, 
wit. Not that he'd be funny at Thanksgiving, but that he would know enough about the world to rearrange it in his speech. That someone who's witty knows how to measure the aptness of things, measure people, measure truth, measure, and offer that. How good it is when somebody says something apt. Because a wise man's path leads upward to life. That was sort of what I was thinking about with upright before. I don't think he means that. I don't think he's, he's saying, you know, Evan Wilson, a couple thousand years from now, he's going to be looking for a verse where he used the up is a key thing. I don't think Solomon's putting up in there. I want you to think about it a little bit. That upward to life, that, that you know that you can stand up. You know that you can walk. You know that as soon as your will is gone, as soon as you die, your body will drop. And it will drop into a box, and then they'll drop it into a six-foot hole. And then you won't be there anymore because all the, the thingies in you are going to just take you down further. Upward to life, that he may avoid shale beneath. How you stand. Leslie has plans when she gets old to be that, you know, that old lady sitting at church functions, probably with a cane, looking at young women going, stand up straight. <laughs> okay? So prepare yourselves. It's going to happen. But standing up straight, it's just a, it's just a uh, metaphor. Stand up straight. This is what the, what, the, what the pressures of the world, what are they all about? What is the nature of the world? You can know everything. God bless you if you do. Seek these things and seek your God. And then learn how to arrange it so that you can balance with gravity, with the pressures on you, and get every, every morning's cheerfulness out of it. The smile on your face because God has made your heart glad. You are not someone who is a fool believing it is better than it is or a fool believing how worse it is but doesn't fear the Lord and ends up either with cool or affliction. We want to have a good life. Have the kind of self that the creation of God wanted to design in you. What did he want out of Adam before things went sideways, before that chick turned up? What do you want? What do you want out of you in Christ? Because the second Adam is there to heal. What can you know? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Guide us in your joy, your gladness. Keep us knowing more in such a way that fear of you and love will measure and arrange these things in great joy. Keep us from being stupid. In your son's name, amen.